This is the Church Planting Podcast, brought to you by the Broadcast Network. Broadcast exists to support, train and encourage church planters. For more information about who we are or about the training that we offer, please visit our website at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org. Hello, welcome to the Broadcast Podcast. My name is Tom, I'm part of the team at Broadcast. And in this episode of the pod, we're bringing you the recording of a talk from a recent conference in Manchester that was hosted by the Northern Gospel Project. Now, Northern Gospel Project is a new initiative. It was started towards the back end of last year. And Broadcast is really pleased to be involved from the ground floor of the Northern Gospel Project. It's a collaboration of a few local churches and other ministries that want to see more churches planted in and around Manchester. So uh, we're getting together across slightly different theological lines, but united around the gospel. How can we support each other? How can we share the expertise that we've got? How can we make sure that the parts of our city uh, that may be unreached at the moment are having churches that preach the gospel planted into them? So we had the launch event back in November. And we bring you one of the sessions from that now, that was Neil Powell, who heads up the London Project. That's a very similar initiative down in London. He came up and he spoke about planting churches that plant churches. So that's what we're bringing you today. We hope you enjoy this talk from Neil Powell. Thank you very much indeed, Ralph. And um, we need to come back to God's word as we uh, finish our session, our time together today. Um, we prayed just at the end of that last session, do something remarkable in our, in our midst, in our towns, in our cities. And um, <clears throat> moving from Birmingham to London has been an eye-opener to me in many ways. I actually came to faith as a student in London back in, uh, yeah, a long time ago. Uh, so a, a friend of mine in my hall of residence took me along to church where God's word was opened. I was kind of low-hanging fruit in a way. I, I believed in God. I had no idea why Good Friday was a Good Friday. Couldn't have told you the first thing about, um, about the gospel. But I was hungry and ready to receive the good news and respond. And so within a matter of maybe six or eight weeks of first encountering Christians at uni, I'd, I'd come to faith. And that was in my first year. And uh, went on to, um, to work for that church after four years of, of being a student. So I, I remembered London. I was, came to faith there, met my wife there, got married there. But then it was 20 plus years before I would return, this time to work with um, City to City in launching the London Project. And so what I was doing a day a week in Birmingham with 2020 Birmingham, or maybe half a day a week, sometimes a day a week, I was essentially a church pastor and planter trying to help this collective get going. What I was doing part-time in Birmingham, I'm now doing full-time in London. So I'm, I'm essentially a player turned coach. I'm one of those guys that's had to say goodbye to regular consecutive pulpit ministry and uh, instead find my, t- find my life is supporting those who are entering into ministry as church planters and pastors or moving to London and so on. So I miss it very much. I miss regular ministry and preaching. So I'm grateful for the opportunity um, to speak from God's word today. Before I do, as we prayed um, to the Lord, do something remarkable in our midst. Let me just tell you something about London because I hope it will be an encouragement to you. Have this in your mind as I give you some basic facts about what's going on in the church in London. That that maybe London is a forerunner 
of what God is going to do in the cities of the UK and actually across Europe. That is our prayer and our heart's desire because God is doing a remarkable thing in the city. So let me just tell you five basic things about the church in London or the city just to encourage you and say, Lord, do that in Manchester too. Do it in Birmingham, do it in Leeds, do it wherever else. The church in London is the only, it's the only city in Europe where the church is growing faster than the rate of the population. So right now, something like 8.7%, 8.7% of Londoners attend church once a month. And what we saw in London was, like everywhere else in the UK, great decline from the 1900s right the way through to 1980. But we've seen a return of faith to the city. So that right now in London, the percentage of people attending church is what it was 100 years ago. It's gone down, 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 down. But now, since 1983 to the present day, up and up and up again. So much so that uh, two academics at Durham University have edited a collection of, um, of essays and research under the name The Desecularization of the City. Uh, David Goodhue is one of, the, uh, one of the editors, they're both at Durham. And uh, he makes the case in this collection of articles and research from sociologists and other um, religious studies experts that London went through secularization but has come out the other side. The first city in the world to have been secularized that is now desecularized. If you measure, when your measure of secularization is the percentage of people attending church. There's lots of ways you can measure secularization, but that's the way they're measuring it in the book. And they're saying London is the first. And of course, we pray, Lord, would this be a forerunner? The church in London is not only growing, the church in London is young. One in three Christians in their 20s in England, one in three is in London. We pray that they will leave London and come to you and further afield again. The church in London is evangelical. Uh, 61% of churches in London define as evangelical. And something like just over half of people who go to church in London say they're evangelical. So the church in London is growing. The church in London is young. The church in London is evangelical. And the reason all of those things are happening is because the church in London is diverse. The reason that the church has been renewed and quickened in London is not because the historical church has been revived and white Western secular people have in increasing numbers come to church, although there's something of that dynamic at play. But the reason it's been growing is because God has brought the nations to London and he's brought them from particular parts of the world to renew the church. So we prayed, our brother prayed at the front, would God bring people? And he mentioned Australia. He mentioned Africa and Asia, and he prayed that from Manchester in the north. And that prayer of faith, we want to say God has already heard and answered that prayer for London. So Peter Brilly is the UK's leading statistician. Some of you will have on your shelf UK Church Statistics, the book that, uh, that he published every now and then. He's just retired, I think, fairly recently. But he did one study that between 2005 and 2012, in seven years in London, he found and identified in seven years 400 new churches in London in seven years. And most of them 
we're African Pentecostal church. So to my African brothers here in the room, I want to say on behalf of the church in London, thank you. Thank you for coming to the UK. Many people say to me, thank you that the gospel first went from the UK to my part of the world. I had that conversation a lot, and now we need to change the conversation where we start to say thank you to the church in Africa. Thank you to the church in India. Thank you to the church wherever you are, if you represent another part of the world, for coming to bless a city and a nation that turned its back on God. Thank you for renewing the church in our day and in our time. So the church in London is diverse. One in eight church services is not in English, which gives you a sense of uh, what's going on. And the church in London is also planting. So something like one in seven churches has planted in the last 20 years. And the statistics seem to suggest that most of that church planting has, uh, has taken root and has, has grown to become healthy churches that have in turn uh, planted healthy churches. So God is doing a new thing. What we prayed in faith for Manchester, we can look to London and say, in a sense, God has already started to hear the prayer of the UK and to meet it and to answer it in his mercy um, in an extraordinary way. And if London, why not Birmingham? Why not Manchester? Why not Liverpool, Leeds, and Edinburgh? We say, Lord, would you do that? Maybe it will come out of London. Maybe it will just come a whole other route. But would the Lord renew his church? See, God has a plan, and it's God who's the God of mission. And his mission is to ensure that heaven will be filled with a multitude that no person can number from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And guess what? We're only here today because God has invited us to play our part in his mission. So why are we here at all today? Well, I guess we're here not because we believe we have the answers, not because we are the answer to the need of today, but because God is a God who is still on mission in this part of the world. And I want to encourage us to have gospel confidence. Why plant churches that plant churches? Why would you do it? Only if you believe that it would reap its own reward. That God would take your church planting endeavors and ensure that through it, people who otherwise wouldn't hear of Jesus would have a chance to hear and believe and be included in that number around the throne for all eternity. That's why we're here. Femi said it's hard work. Jonathan and I can talk about that, saying we'll do this for 10 years. We're busy leading a church. We're busy planting our own churches, but for 10 years we'll work together for the greater good of Birmingham. Why would we do it? Well, because we believe through the multiplication of churches, many more people will hear of Jesus, respond and be believed and brought in to the household of God. So we prioritize this new extra thing because it's a multiplication strategy. God is at work in all of this city, but there's a, there's a need for gospel churches. Therefore, maybe if we work together, more will be done. And if more will be done that way, I'll make it a higher priority. So one of the questions as you go from here today that you'll have to wrestle with is, what is my part in this? What, what can I give? How much time? Because if you're going to say yes to this, you might end up saying no to other things. How will you manage that? Why would you choose to do that? How will you explain that to your fellow leaders in the church and the congregation? 
Well, it's because God is on mission. He's on mission through the church. And we need many more churches to reach the lost to the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray and we're going to look at God's word together. Father in heaven, uh, we want to play our part, great or small, in what you are doing in this region of the world. You are the God of mission and you invite us to join you. In fact, you command us to join you. But we pray that you would help us find our place, both as individuals, as leaders, and as churches, that indeed many more would be added to the kingdom to rejoice with you in all eternity. Amen. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you've, got, if you've got a Bible, we'll read those verses. It's coming up there on the screen if you prefer. I'm so old, I can't even read this Bible anymore. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.15 And Jesus died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though Christ were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. That's why we plant churches that plant churches, isn't it? Today is the day of salvation. I have a friend who's also one of Ralph's friends, who was the first person I know who ever came to faith in our church in the first year that we started it. He was called Gil back then, and he had dyed red hair. He came from a pretty difficult background. His father was an alcoholic. One of his brothers had drug issues. But he was doing pretty well, and he'd found himself at the University of Birmingham, and he was doing law. And early on, he found a Gideon's Bible in his room and started to read it and was attracted to the person of Jesus and then found his way to church. Ralph will know this story better than me. Found his way through our doors into the church and was wonderfully converted, pretty, like me, pretty low-hanging fruit in a way. And then his girlfriend that he brought along to church was converted as well. And uh, he then, after graduating, went into ministry and for a number of years worked with Birmingham City Mission. And we tried to figure out with Giles, as he was then known, it was Gil when he was a student, it was Giles later on. We said, Giles, you know, how many hours do you think you've done on the streets in Birmingham? 
because he would do Saturday and Tuesday every week. And we got a piece of paper, we sat down, we tried to work out the years he'd been doing it, and we came up with the answer, something like 3,000 hours on the streets of Birmingham, speaking to whoever stopped and give, give him a hearing. And we interviewed him in church, and we said, uh, one of the questions we asked Charles was, what kept you going? Why did you keep talking to people about Jesus? What got you out of bed to go back onto the streets of Birmingham? And his answer has always stayed with me, and it's a, it's a striking answer. He said, what kept me going was that I knew that it was inevitable that people would respond. And I love that choice of word, don't you? He said, I knew that it was inevitable because he knew his Bible. He knew the parable of the sower. Yes, there was a lot of wastage. Yes, there were a lot of people walking by those streets with their earphones on, unable to hear what this madman was saying. There were others who came to heckle, whether it was the militant atheist or the militant Muslim, who were there to disturb and disrupt and try and stop anyone else from hearing. But he also knew that there would be people that God would send his way to whom he would minister the gospel and they would turn to Christ with a living faith. But what he didn't know was who. He didn't know when. He didn't know in what number. But he knew it was inevitable. Because today is the day of salvation. And he knew if me, if me why not others? And that's why we plant churches, isn't it? It's inevitable that people will respond. We don't know who, we don't know when, we don't know what number, but that's why we want to saturate our communities with gospel churches of, of all flavors and varieties and all nationalities so that everyone will have a chance to hear of Jesus in a language that they can understand and in a culturally appropriate setting. We want everyone to do that, which is why this needs to be a super diverse room of leaders if that's going to happen in a super diverse setting such as Manchester or Birmingham or London. It's inevitable that people will respond and that's why we do uh, what we do. It's not an aspiration that people might become Christians according to the Bible. It's not an aspiration. It's a promise. Today is the day of salvation. And that same Jesus who is calling people to faith back in the times of the New Testament is still at work in his church today. So how is your gospel confidence? That's why we multiply churches. We know that God's at work in the church. I mean, I don't have to tell you that, do I? When you go to church on a Sunday, you're expecting God to speak, aren't you, to you as believers? And when you go to your midweek groups and you open a Bible, you're ready and receptive and you know, and you're going to talk about it over coffee on a Sunday. Wasn't that sermon great? What really struck you? Oh, God was saying this to me today and so on. We expect God to speak to the church. We know God is growing us in our faith. We see it in our core groups, the giving, the generous giving of the church, the serving, the growing. But having the confidence that Gil had in the power of the gospel to save, well, that's something that comes out of a theological conviction. Australian evangelist David Cook says it this way. He says, we have a confidence that comes from knowing that God is the divine evangelist. And that's what Paul knows, chapter 6 and verse 1. 
he chooses to use this to describe himself at this part in the letter as God's co-workers. Do you see that there? It's a great description, isn't it? He uses all sorts of titles to describe himself. But here, his job description is God's co-workers because we're not here as this collective to do the work of God. We're not here to do the work instead of God or for God, but we're here to join with what God is doing in and through the gospel around the world. In fact, we're just trying to keep up with what God wants to do. So Paul writes to the Corinthians, chapter 6 and verse 1, and these will be our focus, verses 1 and 2. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. Verse 2, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Now, there's a lot going on. 2 Corinthians is quite a hard letter if you've ever preached it. It's not the easiest to understand the dynamic that's at work between Paul and the Corinthian church. And we're not going to make that this morning, uh, this, the, the issue this afternoon. Like Femi, I'll ask apologies for those who want a tight Bible exposition. Uh, you won't get it from me any more than, than you got it from Femi. So I, I join him uh, with that request that we focus in on the principles that I think are clearly here from us from Scripture, even though we're dropping in partway through a story uh, and an argument. I want to draw out uh, two principles, and the first one is this. Today is a great day to be God's co-worker, because today is the day of salvation. And I want to help you to grasp that in two ways, because I want you to remember that you need to thank the Lord it's today and not yesterday. When he says today is a day of salvation, let's understand a little bit what he means. Um, I don't know whether you've ever played the game. If you could live at any time in history, when would you like to have lived? Maybe you've uh, played that game or talked to your kids about that. For me, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't want to live at a time before general anesthetic or antibiotics. So I'm immediately limiting myself to the last 80 years, okay? I'm also quite glad I live in a time of global travel where we can practically be anywhere in the world within 24 hours. So that kind of limits me to the last 40 to 50 years. And I love living in a world where everyone seems to speak the same language. And through computers, I can speak to anyone in the world at a moment's notice. So thank the Lord for Zoom. And that means I'm glad I've been alive in the last five years. Imagine missionaries in the 19th century hearing this, what we can do today. What an amazing time to be alive and to be about the Lord's work the last five years have been. But of course, that's not what Paul means quite when he says today is a great day to be alive, today and not yesterday. He's referring to New Covenant ministry over against Old Covenant ministry. He's talking about being alive after the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. Because our ministry is different from the ministry that came yesterday. So turn back to chapter 3 and you'll get a sense of what he means. Mine is headed the greater glory of the new covenant in the NIV. Yesterday, you see, was the ministry of Moses, the time before Jesus. 
And uh, what a time that was to be alive. Your ministry, chapter 3, verse 7, brought death. It's a great ministry to have, isn't it? It was a ministry, verse 8, that brought condemnation. For what Moses did was came down from the mountain with stone tablets, revealing the very nature of God, the character of God, and the will of God. The Ten Commandments. And that rightly led to people saying, woe to me, I'm a sinner. What hope is there for me living under the old covenants? I need a rescue. But of course they didn't know when that rescue would come. They didn't know who that would be or how it would happen. Even the angels longed to look into it, says Peter in, his, uh, in 1 Peter. No, their ministry brought death. Moses' ministry brought condemnation. But we live this side of the cross. So that you know that in a single conversation with a taxi driver that lasts three minutes, their eternal destiny can be changed. In three minutes. For them to hear the good news of the gospel and respond. Like a thief on a cross who with his dying breath can say, have mercy on me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus can say to a man who's done nothing good in his whole life, today you will be with me in paradise. That's new covenant ministry. In a moment, in a single conversation, from death to life, from hell to heaven. Not because of anything within that person, but because of the perfect life and death and resurrection of Jesus. That's why today is the day of salvation. It could happen to the very next person that you meet or walks in through the door of your church. Yours is not a ministry of death, condemnation. It's a ministry of life, 3 verse 7. It's a ministry of righteousness. And Paul says, thank the Lord we get to share in that ministry. And so verse, chapter 3 verse 12, because we have this ministry, we can be very bold. We, we talk about risk-taking, and we're right to talk carefully about when is a right time to consider planting a church. You know, you can go too, too quick. You can try to do too, too much. Those things are real issues amongst gospel people who want to reach the world. So we need care and thoughtfulness, but we do want to be risk-takers, don't we? Because we know we live... In the new covenant, we can be very bold. We can attempt great things for God. I have a friend by the name of Roger. He's 86 years old. And Roger has a simple purpose in his life. And he says this is his mission statement. He says, I want there to be more people in heaven because I'd lived than if I hadn't. And I love that. It's so simple, isn't it? More people in heaven because I lived than if I hadn't. Now that can be done through ministering to people in the church family, helping Christians to keep going in the faith who are struggling. But of course it can be done through those gospel conversations as we pray, Lord, would you work through me to bring someone from death to life? That's a good reason to go and plant a church, isn't it? And then plant again. We can be, chapter 3, verse 12, very bold. And living this side of the cross even means when it gets tough, and it will get tough, with this ministry, chapter 4, verse 1, we do not lose heart. 
because today's the day of salvation. And 5 verse 16, all this is from God, who has not only reconciled us to himself, but has now given us the ministry of reconciliation. As we look back over human history, for hundreds, in fact, for thousands of years, the day of salvation was yet to come. Many people have lived and walked on this earth who did not live this side of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. But you and I live in this moment, the day of salvation. And it's up to us in God's strength to work with him for the saving of many souls. Thank goodness it's today and not yesterday. For God is on the move in remarkable ways. You know it's the day of salvation when you hear about the church in China, don't you? And you think, my word, even the Economist magazine says there are more Christians in China than there are members of the Communist Party. 72 million members of the Communist Party. The church, somewhere between 70 and 100 million. And that's because, of course, the Chinese government came up with the best church planting strategy that has ever been invented. They said, look, if you plant a church, you're going to have to plant another church when you get to 25, because that's the most that can meet in one gathering. That's the ultimate church planting strategy. Get to 25, you have to plant. And it was the atheist Communist Party of China that invented it. So if it's good enough for them, maybe it'll work for you as well. That's the house church model, isn't it? Get to 25, you must plant again. And now we have 100 million Christians in China. I have a friend, Abraham, who works in the north of India. And in the first 10 years of his ministry, it didn't much look like a day of salvation. In his first 10 years, he saw three people come to faith. So work it out, that's an average of one person becoming a Christian every thousand days. One per thousand days. So 999 days, it didn't look like today is the day of salvation. But then that one person came to faith. And then that second, three people in 10 years. In the next 30 years, he's seen something like 25,000 people come to faith. And he's been directly involved in the planting of 58 churches in that same region. Three in 10 years, three people in 10 years, 50 plus churches, 25,000 people in the next 30. Because today is the day of salvation. Operation World estimates that the number of Christians across India has grown in 10 years from 2.5% of the population to just under 6%. Doubled in 10 years, the church. In Brazil in 1960, there were 2 million Christians. Today, 50 million, most of them in London, as far as I can tell. Thank goodness we live in the day of God's mercy. When in a moment people can come to faith, the next door you knock as you're starting that church and you're introducing yourself to that community, the next door that is opened may see someone lifted from hell to heaven. You can sense the urgency, can't you, in Paul here. So thank God it's today and not yesterday. And more briefly, secondly, thank God it's today and not tomorrow. See, so look at verse 1. He says, uh, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. 
For there is a day coming that is not a day of salvation, but a day of judgment. When the day of salvation will come to an end, this chapter between Christ's first coming and second coming will end. It could be later today, it could be tomorrow, it could be five years or ten years. It could be a thousand years. But there will be a day when it's too late for people to hear the good news of Jesus and respond. When God's offer will be withdrawn, his work will be complete, and the window of opportunity will be closed forever. And we don't know how long the Lord will delay. He continues to have mercy, and we're thankful, and that is why we're at work. But today is a great day to be alive because it's a great day to join with God in his mission, to be like Paul, verse 1, a co-worker, because today is the day of salvation. Charles Spurgeon ministered uh, in London for many years, and I want to just finish my uh, word of exhortation um, with some words from Charles Spurgeon in 1878. He preached on these verses, chapter 6, 1 and 2. And this is what he had to say. He said, brethren, quite old-fashioned, brethren, if I had my pick of days, I should like to go forth and preach the gospel when it was a day of salvation. Would not you? One likes to go down the river with the tide. And if you can have a fair wind as well, it's grand sailing. But surely now, whenever you seek souls, you have wind and tide with you. For it is a day of salvation. God is saving men. It is his daily business, his crowning glory, and he has set his heart on it. When the infinite Jehovah proclaims a day of salvation, the people shall be saved. And there shall be no question about it. Thousands upon thousands of erring ones shall repent and believe, and so shall be saved to the glory of God's grace. Do not tell me that London is very wicked. I know it is, but the Lord has much people in this place, and he will redeem them from all iniquity. And then Spurgeon concludes, his everlasting purpose shall not fail. And his infinite pity shall not be stayed. Glory be to his blessed name. He will accomplish all his purposes, for this is the day of salvation. And his people shall be called to him by some means, by any means, by every means. And they shall know that the Lord saveth not by might, nor by power, but by his spirit. Let us pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, thank you that we get to live in the day of salvation. We get to join with you as co-workers in your mission of gathering the nations to yourself. And we don't even need to leave our villages, our towns, and our cities to join you. But we pray on a day like today where we've thought about multiplying churches that we would be mindful of those who have yet to hear. That you would draw our hearts and minds to those places 
and those people who have not yet heard of Jesus Christ. And we ask in a day of salvation that you would, as we have already praised, raise up those workers that might include some from amongst us because indeed the field is white unto harvest. Thank you, Father, that we have this ministry of reconciliation. Thank you that therefore we can be very bold. May we not lose heart for all the days that you give us because today is the day of salvation.